0: Good morning. It's AirTalk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. It's LAist 89.3. That's our brand new identifier. Fortunately, nothing else changes. We continue with the same kind of programming, whether it's AirTalk or the NPR programs that you love, Nick Roman. Suzanne Watley, of course, Austin Cross with the first hour of NPR's All Things Considered, Terry Gross still here at noon in the weekend lineup that you appreciate, but we are now calling ourselves LAist. 89.3 89.3 and we're going to spend the first segment of today's program talking about the reasons for that change how it fits into the overall mission of our three entities which include LAS.com, the digital presence and the podcasting studio LAS studios joining us is our president and CEO of Laas, Herb Scannell Herb thank you for coming and talk
2: about this thank you Larry yeah um, well, you know, I've been here for four years. And uh, before I came here um, in discussions with the board, um, they raised the issue of, uh, of our brand and that we were many things to many people. We had Elias, we had uh, KPCC, we had relationships with APMG, kind of an alphabet soup of letters. Uh, and, um, and we talked about trying to kind of organize it and come to, uh, you know, the question was a unified brand or multiple brands. And so we did some research and we had an internal group who came out and they said, look, I think we should line up behind LAist, because uh, the name kind of captures the spirit of what we are. We serve greater LA. Uh, and then we did some research and went out and talked to thousands of people and it kind of validated it. Um, and then we um, brought it in and today is the culmination of a lot of that effort. And uh, the reason for doing it, I think a couple of reasons, one of which is, you know, we're living in a multi-platform world now and folks are looking to access um, us in different places, not just on the radio, um, on, online at, uh, at LA.com, in podcasts, and it made sense for us to be unified. Uh, so, so that was one reason behind it. Um, I mentioned the brand confusion, and uh, the British have this great expression I always liked, which was the best, I used to work for the BBC, by the way, and the best products have the name on the tin, and um, that meant the name on the package, the British Broadcasting Company. It's British. And I used to work there. They reminded me I wasn't British. But, um, but, but this is a product or, you know, or what we do here is all about LA. And if you're an LAist, you're an enthusiast for LA and greater LA. And we serve greater LA every day. And it's a place where people come to kind of discover things about LA, to connect to others. And we help you navigate L.A.
0: One of, the, one of the things that I've heard to this point, uh, having uh, written a couple of letters to, to listeners and to members, uh, giving a preview of the shift, I've heard from people in Santa Barbara, the Coachella Valley, we don't consider ourselves L.A., and this name doesn't really, we don't feel like is us. And, you know, one of the points that I, I stress to them is that, um, that the L.A.ist... Uh, identifier is, is really about Southern California, and even though we use that name because of our acquisition of the digital site LAS.com, that Our programming is going to continue to reflect what's happening in the Coachella Valley, the Inland Empire, Orange County, of course, in Santa Barbara and in Ventura County. And you're going to hear the communities throughout Southern California in our identifiers at the top of the hour as well. So. Please understand that despite the name change to LAist 89.3, we continue to serve the entire Southern California region with our news. Also joining us is our chief content officer, Kristen Muller. Kristen, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, For those who are concerned that this may you change what what kpcc as it used to be done did as com explain a bit about how this affects coverage
3: sure and thanks for having me larry I mean, as you said, this this is to us just a synthesis of what we're already doing. And it's not we have no plans to change our coverage at all. Um, We will continue, as you mentioned, to cover Orange County. We'll continue to cover housing and and the environment and um, government civics and all the areas we usually do. In fact, um, you know, we've had since since the pandemic started, we've had uh, Nick Roman, based in orange county every day it's our bureau isn't says, it well really his living room yes <laughs> <laughs> and we're grateful for it um so no there are no plans to change our coverage um to me and as herb noted this is really about making the best use of our of our resources resources that we depend on our members for so you know f- you know um having different brands, putting efforts into distributing content under different brands, marketing different brands, that all takes time and energy, and it's a better use of our resources if we're doing it under one brand, and it's really on us to make The most of our members donations and i think this is a really strong way to do that
0: well if you have questions about this shift of course our lines are open for you i i would just ask please don't call and berate our call screeners if you're unhappy with the move they're 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 innocent bystanders if you have questions though about this please give us a call we're at 866- eight nine three we also have a new email address for you to share your questions or comments and you can send it to atcomments comments at laist.com that's atcomments comments at laist.com Please include your location and your first name with your question or your comments. Peter in Pasadena says, why are you throwing away 40 plus years of brand identity that you have earned with KPCC? Uh, Peter, before I, I ask Kerb to respond to that, let me just say as someone who actually goes back to the early years of KPCC, which came out of KPCS, the original call letters for 89.3, it, it stands for Pasadena City College. And um, you know one of the things that we had with the call letters was a lot of confusion. I still have people who refer to us as KPPC, and so this has been an issue with our call letters, despite the fact as you say, there has been identification with it for decades under those call letters. Herb, you want to elaborate on that?
2: Yeah, you know, I think um I know we have and it sounds like Pierre's one of them, the long time listeners who um, have had a relationship with KpCC. Uh, for you know for many years and we appreciate that and we hope that that mean you know continues because as we've said i think if you like the product that we have the news product and the and the things that we do here, then uh, we'll continue to be, to be doing that. Um, I know when we did some research, what we found, and this is to the point of how you know the opportunity to get bigger audiences and everything like that. KPCC was not well known to uh, 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 to many people on an unaided basis. If he said, "What do you, you know? Tell me what do you listen to in media?" We weren't high up there, nor was Elias. But when you were when you were asked. Um, Do you, you know, on on a what they call a prompting, do you uh, listen to KPCC or do you listen to Elias or or do you read Elias? Elias had higher uh, scores in part because I think people thought they live in L.A. Of course, I I read Elias. They kind of thought they should. So it kind of validated the idea that a name can be something that is a magnet to people. And I don't know that we had that same effect with KPCC. With that said, you know what KPCC and the relationship we've had over time with both our listeners and with the college is important to us. And you know, every top of the hour, we will identify ourselves as KP as as KPCC, and and um, will be connected to Pasadena.
0: For for the few of us that are still here that actually worked for Pasadena City College in the early years, it's nice that that relationship continues. Again, we're at eight six six eight nine three five seven two two or. You can email us at our new email address, comments at laist.com. Please include your first name and your location. Penelope, uh, somewhere in Orange County, uh, says, I have a legacy gift for KPCC in my will. Have you legally changed the name to LAist and should I do the same in my will?
2: That's a good question. We should get back to Penelope if that's possible. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is to that.
0: Okay. All right. Uh, Thank you, Penelope. Uh, And I wouldn't be surprised if Southern California Public Radio, the legal entity, is included in your will as well, which may clarify. But I'm not a lawyer. Don't take that uh, to the bank. But thank you. An excellent question. 866 893 5722, or email us at at comments at com. It's going to take me a while to get used to this. In fact, I was thinking about setting up a, a fine jar that every time I, I said the old identifier money would go in for something nice for the producers of AirTalk but I haven't done that that yet so um but I'm sure that I'll be making that slip as the, as the days go on again 866 893 5722 so one of the questions I'm sure that some people have is What does this mean for the aligning of content on these three different platforms? For example, am I going to be having more podcasts that relate to what LAS 89.3 is doing? Is is there going to be more overlapping of what I see on the website, LAS.com, and what I hear on the radio?
3: Yeah, well, the reality is we've always been one newsroom. It's not that we have two separate staffs that are producing content for KPCC and another staff that is uh, publishing on las.com In fact, it's the same group of terrific producers and reporters and editors that are feeding both platforms every day. To the extent that we can get the the radio content onto our website and the website content onto the radio, that is what we're striving to do. And I think as, you know, what struck me when Peter asked, you know, what about the brand equity behind KPCC? You know, we're, we're entering an era where a lot of um, news consumers don't associate call letters with their news source. Um, they associate maybe social media with it. So it's not just about the radio and the website anymore. It's really about being in more places, reaching people where they're at. And we're seeing this
0: in public broadcasting and digital as well. Um, Cap Public Radio for you know, Sacramento uh, and many of the other uh, stations are uh, moving from call letter branding because of the regional um, the reach that they've got as well. Uh, Jamie in Culver City said, I'm fine with the name change, but neither Google, Apple, or Amazon is recognizing LAist. Is there anything they can do about that? Jamie, uh, we are working on that. So for now, you can uh, tell your smart speaker to play KPCC in time as more people ask for LAist uh, 89.3. That will end up being recognized, but we are working on that process right now. But it's an excellent point that you raise. You can continue for now to tell your smart speaker to play kpcc rob in the Wilshire district says will L- LAS be filing with the fcc for new call letters or will it be a pirate radio state no uh-huh. it's not a pirate radio uh-huh. station. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Aye. laughs> um but no we are going to continue yes. with the call letters herb explain why please yes yeah,
2: so we are you know we are continue to be kpcc and if you listen to the top of the hour and the bottom of the hour you hear the identification of kpcc uh, we're not you know changing our legal name and in that way, um, the you know the um, the call letters are uh, are KPCC, and um, that that'll be the case. We'll just be referring to us and cl- kind of what I would say, cleaning up a lot of the air where we were left and right. Sometimes LAS, sometimes KPCC, some, and now we'll be much cleaner. And you'll hear us talking about Elias. Most of the hour, but at the top you will hear KPCC.
0: Our faithful listener, Deborah in Willits in Northern California. Okie dokie, but what do I tell my smart speaker? Deborah, you heard the word. Tell it to play KPCC for now. Um, uh, Angelica tweets at Airtalk, I always get the sense LA is just for transplants, and I would really like this radio station to be more for natives. Angelica, thanks very much. Uh, Kristen, your response to that?
3: Yeah, well, I I mean, my my hope is that LAist is for people who maybe just arrived here, but people who've lived their whole lives here. I mean, this is, you know, for us, LAist is um, designed to help you uh, get the tools that you need to live your life better in L.A. So that's information about... You know how to how to navigate rent. It's information on the best hikes to go to. It's investigations into government accountability, government corruption. These are all things that matter to people, no matter how long they've lived here. And in fact, we know that we have uh, readers all over the country who deeply, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, relate to L.A. and feel like it's their home, even if they're not living here. And so, we want Elias to be a place for anyone who feels like they. Have an affinity to this region, who feel like they're invested in its future, and who want the tools to make it a better place in their daily lives. Yeah,
2: and I would add in in our research, you know, the affinity for LA, the civic pride is deep. You know, folks really love the city, and they, you know, they love the the the, their relationship to the city, and the idea of LAist wasn't really to to um, be for somebody that wasn't of the city. It was really to be of the city, and for you know for folks that really have that kind of pride. And, uh, and and I think that's what, you know, what we believe is is, uh, is, is embodied in the name.
0: Uh, we have Nigel in Lake Forest in Orange County said, when you put L.A. in the title, you're saying L.A. It couldn't be more exclusionary. I understand about branding, but how can you justify doing something so exclusionary?
2: Well, you, you know, I, again, I, I, the idea here is about greater L.A. and, and we're not going to be, you know... Uh, Um, changing the focus that we have over the the Southern California area. But, you know, it's a tough thing when you're playing, you know, with brands. You know, those of you from Anaheim, you know the branding of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim which was a kind of, you know, a bad compromise, I would say. And the truth of the matter is, you know, for a lot of folks, you know, the Olympics are coming to Los Angeles. So they'll be all over great LA, Greater LA. And I think those that live in the area have the expectation that um, that LA is a bigger umbrella for a lot of folks, you know, beyond uh, here, but also here that allow us to kind of, um, um, you know, talk and meet with different people.
0: And I have to say that the KPCC call letters are very Pasadena-centric because it's Pasadena City College that it stands for. And even as we have this close relationship with PCC, our esteemed uh, you know local higher education uh, um, uh, institute, um, we have that issue of being a much larger, more encompassing entity now. So, you know, KPCC always kind of said in it pasadena and of course that's an important city in our coverage area but our reach extends all the way from Santa Barbara down to the San Diego County line, out through the Inland Empire to the Coachella Valley, which has become an extremely important part of our listenership. All of that is a part of what we cover at LAST 89.3. Uh, Cassie in Redlands says, I want to know what the plan is for resuming coverage of the Inland Empire. Since SCPR took over our station in Redlands, there hasn't been coverage. The Inland Empire is not part of the greater LA area. How are are you going to fulfill your promise that's cassie and redlands
3: that's a great question thank you cassie i mean there's a tremendous amount of change going out in the inland empire as we've we have reported on in the past and you know we'll continue to report on i think you know with every um with every editorial decision we make we have to really look at what are the larger trends in the region and how are they playing out how are they affecting people's lives and there's no question that um you know, some of the massive changes we've seen in the inland inland empire over the last couple of years, the growth of warehouses, air pollution, that these are things affecting everyone, no matter where they live. And so, you know, we'll continue to do that. I'm you know, can we do better? We could always do better, no matter what region we're covering and you know, we strive to do better every day, so we continue to also welcome your input. If there are ideas, if there are stories, or there are issues that you want to see more of, please reach out to us.
0: Yeah, please let us know because we we uh, have had on economic analysis from the Inland Empire. We recently did a segment on employment there and how it differs from what's happening in coastal Southern California. The issue of warehouses, air quality in the Inland Empire, all of those are things that that we have taken up on air talk, and of course we can do more on our program as well so please don't hesitate to send us ideas and you can do that at at comments at LAS.com to let us know what those ideas are david in cover city says can you spell laist yes l-a-i-s-t and in the logo you'll see the la is capitalized ist is lowercase that's how you uh, spell la Herb, just something in closing here as we, we wrap up our discussion about the re-identification to LAST 89.3.
2: Right. Well, first of all, I just want to thank all the listeners for supporting us, um, you know, every day. And hopefully this will also give a sense for those that, that might not have thought of us on, on our other platforms um, to go and look at our other platforms, which would be Elias.com um, and the uh, La Elias Studios. By the way, we have a daily newscast on Elias to answer your question earlier. The LA Report is daily and done by Suzanne and Nick. So, if you're looking for something that's on demand, you can go into that medium. We just launched um, in this uh, in the fall. We launched a a new podcast that has a presence in in uh, in a newsletter and also um, in um, in on the radio, which is How to LA with Brian De Los Santos, which is a great view of you know discovering and navigating LA and connecting other folks and kind of seeing communities that may may not be the, the communities that everybody uh, gets to see, hear or see on the you know in in their media. So um, so I think the the my, my, my final message is I think if you like what we do here, I hope that you'll continue to stay with us. We are um, you know kind of rebranding and, and unifying it under one brand. But the product that we make is the product that that I hope you've always liked and will continue to like.
0: And let me just add to that, you know, more of our listening to what we call internally the live stream, what you hear through your radio speakers or your smart speaker or on our app. More of that every year is being done via the app and via smart speakers, and and that is the trend that we're seeing clear, and not just with younger listeners, but you know, my my mother who's eighty listens primarily on her smartphone app and on her smart speaker. Rarely does she listen to the radio unless she happens to be in her car. This is the very clear trend. And the call letters, KPCC, have really been associated with our broadcast signal. This opens up through the app, through LAS.com, through smart speakers, the totality of what we do and unifies it under this one identifier that, despite it being LAS, really will continue to bring you the coverage in depth from throughout the Southern California. Region that we care about, that we continue to serve, and that we appreciate deeply for all the financial support that has come in to build what we are. That is not changing. Our commitment to you is clear, and we thank you very much for your support. We'll continue on Air Talk with a look at the devastating earthquake in Turkey and what if a 7.8 magnitude quake happened here in Southern California? We'll be back in just one minute. It's air talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Just want to let you know the Hollywood bowl has just announced its summer season. We're going to be talking about that coming up next hour on air talk. We'll run through the major attractions. Janet Jackson is going to be headlining the gala opening with Ludacris. We'll talk about all the terrific classical jazz, popular artists who are part of the bowl season. That's coming up next hour. But right now we turn our attention to the devastation in Turkey. The death toll has now soared above 6,200. And of course, it's expected to rise still more as search and rescue teams are pouring into Turkey and Syria along the border there, working in freezing temperatures to dig through the remains of buildings that were flattened by that magnitude 7.8 earthquake and some massive on their own aftershocks. Uh, that have also uh, really uh, been a a tremendously difficult thing for people to deal with there. Joining us to talk about... What a quake of that magnitude would potentially mean in Southern California is LAist science reporter and host of the podcast from LAist Studios, The Big Burn, Jacob Margolis. Jacob, thank you so much for for joining us. First of all, we have to say the difficult thing that a 7.8 magnitude earthquake is certainly possible here in Southern California.
6: Yeah, absolutely, Larry. Thanks for having me. Um, and it is it is possible at any time. Uh, you know, there is chance that it could happen tomorrow or the next day and when people think of the magnitude of that size they think of the san andreas fault which of course uh, can result in an earthquake that big or potentially even bigger and years ago the usgs uh us geological survey um they actually modeled out a 7.8 magnitude quake that starts around like the Saltons and breaks north um and it, it they estimate it it could do quite a bit of damage.
0: All right. We're going to get Jacob back on, on a better uh, phone line there. If you have questions about what uh, a huge earthquake like the one that's affected southern Syria is, we're at 866-893-5722. You can also email questions at atcomments at com. Jacob Margolis, Lais science reporter and host of the LAS Studios podcast, The Big Burn, is joining us to talk about... What this would mean, the challenges of dealing with an earthquake of, of that magnitude here in Southern California. And, you know, one of the things that we've, of course, seen here is the evolution of building codes. With each uh, devastating earthquake that we've had, building codes have been toughened to try and and um, deal with what would become. I would go back to the 1933 Long Beach earthquake, which devastated so much. Much of, of coastal Los Angeles and Orange counties, uh, that led to a strengthening of building codes. The Silmar earthquake in 1971, and of course, the Northridge earthquake uh, in the early 90s as well. And, and Jacobs, uh, elaborate a bit on building codes here and how they have tried to account for the degree of shaking that we could experience.
6: Yeah, um, you know, I will say every single structural engineer I've talked to basically says we can only plan for earthquakes that we've experienced, but they do do pretty extensive modeling um, to figure out, like, you know, the best way to build different buildings. Now, what happens during earthquakes, like what happened in Northridge, people remember is that we then find out that certain buildings don't fare too well, like the apartment buildings that collapsed in Northridge. That indicated to us, for instance, soft-story apartment buildings, which are, uh, you know, the classic in Hollywood, um, the kind of the buildings with the parking under the, the, what would be the first level um, with those kind of those really tiny pillars, those tend to collapse. Well, over the past decade or so, um, the city has been, in L.A. at least, they have been mandating retrofits of those soft-story apartment buildings. Now, it's not just those buildings, though, that are at risk. Um, you know, I reported several years ago that there are major skyscrapers in downtown LA that, if hit with the right kind of shaking, very well could have welds that fail and potentially, in a catastrophic scenario, even collapse or partially collapse. On top of that, there are concrete buildings that need retrofitting that could also collapse. That uh, Ron Lind of the LA Times has reported out quite well, and so there are a number of buildings that we should be concerned about that said um just to kind of ease a lot of people's uh you know minds um wood frame like single story wood frame homes tend to do pretty well because wood's pretty ductile meaning it could move with the with the ground and whatnot and so if you do that brace and bolt you have some of those retrofits that is that the state has pushed a lot over the past like 20 30 years um you should be pretty good though anything obviously can't happen
0: All right. Again, if you have questions, we're at 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at laist.com. You know, one of one of the concerns uh, I know that been raised here in Southern California are what are called non-ductile concrete buildings. They have concrete floors and roofs supported by concrete walls, columns, uh, and they can be quite rigid and have a difficult time. You know, dealing with the intense shaking that can occur and looking at how some of those buildings performed in Turkey, Jacob, I was curious if if some of those that might have been of that concrete construction. Do you know?
6: You know, I'm learning more about that today and we'll have a piece on all things considered about this specific thing. However, what I will say is that this is a very real concern in Los Angeles for those buildings and the buildings have not been retrofitted like it was reported years ago and they have not been retrofitted there is a question quite often about uh the cost of retrofit against like you know whether what is what costs more retrofitting the building or having the building essentially fail and failure doesn't necessarily mean complete collapse but the good news is that there are not uh our entire region isn't like blanketed with these buildings and so What I would expect, and what the shakeout report that the USGS released basically says, is that yes, some buildings could very well collapse. um, Hopefully, not too many. But, uh, we, you know, we choose not to do more about it. I mean, and J- much like a lot of other infrastructure stuff, we choose not to
0: do. Uh, Jacob, of course, we, we have search and rescue teams and other aid organizations who are, are pouring into Turkey and Syria to try and help from around the world, including from here in the United States. And for a 7.8 earthquake in Southern California, my assumption is that most of the, the freeways uh, that would allow people uh, to come in or out of Southern California would be so heavily damaged. There would be um, they'd be impassable at points, and so I wonder what yeah. what are what are the plans for being able to fly in um, emergency workers and supplies and things like that in the event of a quake like this here.
6: I mean, it would be all hands on deck. You know, if the San Andreas. So one of the things that you're talking about is. Uh, we have freeways that, that cross the San Andreas Fault. If the San Andreas Fault slips far enough, it could basically de- displace those, uh, those roads enough where it'll be, they'll be impassable. And so we could be limited in the number of places we could bring in supplies to this region with like, you know, I think what, 10 million people or so. And so when that happens, when we do get a big quake, um i've no doubt there will be outside resources coming in uh from all over i'm sure they will use the harbor or you know uh, the port i'm sure they will use every method they can to come in that said um when you ask for specifics around this kind of stuff and like you know i've reached out to cell phone companies to see what their what their plans are for when something like this happens a lot of people are like it's kind of a uh will respond when it happens sort of situation. And in response, my feeling about that is that basically every person, this is what I do personally, I prepare for my family to be essentially on their own and support other family members in the area and friends with water and food for at least two weeks. I think that is a long time, and I don't think it will be that long before help comes in, but I like to be self-sufficient to at least that level so I know we can be comfortable.
0: All right. Um, We may be knocking at your door. Thank you, Jacob. I appreciate it. And (laughs) this is always a reminder of the importance of that preparation. You've been writing about it. It's in your podcast, The Big Burn. And again, this is just as we look at the terrible circumstances under which people in Turkey and Syria are dealing with this. Just a reminder for us to to do our part to try and protect our our family members, our friends and uh, other loved ones. Jacob, thank you for being with us with us. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Larry. You can read uh, Jacob's ongoing uh, coverage of earthquake risk here in Southern California, efforts to mitigate it and to prepare for it at LAist.com. And make sure you download the podcast, The Big Burn, from LAist Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Jacob Margolis is LAist science reporter. Coming up, Fun in the workplace. You know, so many employers now have these sort of uh, forced social gatherings or activities, retreats, and people are expected to take part. I want to hear from you uh, what your best and worst experiences with those sort of convivial workplace activities are. We're at 866-893-5722 or email us at the new email address AT comments at com. We'll be back in 90 seconds. It's AirTalk. I'm Larry Mantle. If you've worked for a company that has off-site events, team-building exercises... I'd like to hear what you think about it and what was either the worst one or the best one that you experienced. We're at 866-893-5722 or email us at LAist, uh, I'm sorry, at, AT, at com. Joining me from the Wall Street Journal columnist where he writes about people's careers and work lives. Callum Borscher is joining us. His latest piece, You're Good at Your Job, But Are You Fun?, enough. Callum, thank you so much. Good to have you with us today.
8: Glad to be with you, Larry.
0: So um, share with us how common this is with different employers uh, doing this sort of enforced fun activity.
8: Well, I think the trend that we're noticing here at The Journal, and maybe many of your listeners are experiencing for themselves, is that maybe they're seeing coworkers a little bit less frequently. But when they do see them, it's a little bit higher intensity, right? So maybe you're in a hybrid format where you're not in the office every day, just bumping into each other and chit-chatting in the kitchen. But for that very reason, some companies have concluded that very intentional team-building bonding exercises are more important than ever. Hence this new avalanche of offsites, right? Sometimes these are multi-day retreats where, okay, you don't see people for six months, and then you get together for like three and four days in yeah. a hotel, and you also see, you know, holiday parties. Uh, a lot of companies really went big uh, last year. Now, some scrapped them all together. It was kind of a polarizing thing. And I think that for a lot of folks, that's what they're finding is like, oh, you know, I used to be able to get away with just sort of keeping up and making small talk in the hallway. And now I'm expected to, you know, go to the, the go kart track or the brewery or, or some ball game at the end of the quarterly all hands meeting. And maybe it wasn't always that way for some folks.
0: Yeah. You, you have uh, one in here about, Uh, a CEO who had everybody go on, what was it? A six mile hike?
8: Oh my goodness. Yeah. So there's this company called Coalesce Automation and they're a fully remote company. They do data analytics, maybe, you know, 50 or so employees, but they're scattered all over the world, Larry. So they don't see each other at all, but when they do, Twice a year, they go real big. So we're talking like offsite retreats to Maui or, or Lisbon, Portugal. And so I was chatting with their chief executive, Armand uh, Petrosian, who, who said, we're gonna keep this habit going uh, next year, but but one thing we've realized we're, we're not gonna make everybody go hiking. You know, we realized it's just not for everybody. He thought it would be really fun, right? They were because he's outside. a hiker, of course. Because yeah. he's a hiker, exactly. And other people who were really active really loved it. It was like a six-hour excursion through the Sintra mountains uh, of of Portugal. He said the views were breathtaking. Other people were just out of breath. Period, Larry. So it wasn't so fun for everybody. They were wishing they had just played hooky. And so you know what he's concluded, and he says, "Look, I'm a." first time founder. This is kind of a learning experience. And when you have a very small team, maybe you can find an activity that pleases everybody. But as you grow, it gets harder to do something that appeals to everybody. So he said, uh, you know, no more mandatory hikes or mandatory anything, period.
0: You have one that sounds really fun that we'll get to in a moment. But I really want to hear from listeners. If you work for a company that does these kinds of team building things, generally off-site. What do you think about them? What was one that you really liked that you thought really served its purpose well, brought people together, provided a fun experience, allowed people to get to know each other better if that, if that was something that they wanted? Or the opposite, an experience that was so uncomfortable, that was such a dud that um, people still talk about it. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Athena and Granada Hill said, My best experience was when I lived in Washington State and worked for T-Mobile. We had a team-building exercise where 150 of us went to the local Boys and Girls Club and renovated it. Uh, Callum, that sounds like a a terrific idea because anybody who wanted to take part in that, there's so many different things that would be part of that renovation.
8: It wouldn't leave people out. I think that's a great point. I mean, the the folks I talked to for this story who said they had been part of – successful team building activities one one of the recurring themes was picking an activity that isn't too specialized right that doesn't just clearly play to some people's strengths and other people's weaknesses right so you can think of the ones we're talking about you know it, it's golf right i mean you either you're either good at it or you've never done it or you know so it sort of h- hits the poles or this time of year at least where i am it's it's skiing right you might have a a company ski retreat. Well, you either you're good at that or it's totally intimidating. Uh, something like that example it might be more successful because, as you said, Larry, I mean, you could go. There'd be a lot of different things. You may not be the handiest person in the world. Yeah. Um, but surely you could slap some paint on the wall, right? I mean, you could find some way to participate and there would be a sense of mission there, right? It would be part of a, a corporate giving, uh, corporate philanthropy type of activity that a lot of employees find some meaning. And I think that's part of the, the exchange too, is, as companies have started to survey, and this is, this is another trend. They're starting to survey their work. Forces more frequently and say, hey, what do you want? And some are saying, let's not spend the money, you know, $250 a head sometimes for, a, you know, a big blowout holiday party. Let's instead do something philanthropic, and that sounds like a good compromise.
0: Well, and, and the other thing, you know, it's important to be uh, considerate of all the people that work for you, and there are a variety of, of different um, physical abilities that are going to be represented. With something like renovating a boys and girls club, you have people regardless of of physically what what uh, they would be able to do, who could be accommodated in that way. And I think that's also a very nice aspect of that. But I'd like to hear from our listeners what was a particularly good sort of team-building fun activity that your boss or the company you work for organized what was a dud? It just fell flat. One of the ones, Callum, that you, you write about in this recent piece was a game that was like a made up kind of a game. So no one had an advantage in the rules, which, which sounded kind of fun. So it was new and everybody had a chance sort of to make a fool of themselves.
8: Yeah, that's basically right. This game is called Whirly Ball, Larry. I've never heard of it. Maybe it rings a bell for you, but if you can picture it, put everybody driving around on bumper cars, uh, then give everybody these uh, sort of curved uh, sticks. I guess you'd call them Sestas in highlight, but with Wiffle Balls. I mean, it's just zany, right? It sounds I mean, like, fun. Has, yeah. Yeah. It sounds fun. Who has ever done this? I watched the video of it. It actually looks very fun. Uh, but the point of it was, as you say, you know, nobody's probably really good. At who's ever practiced something like this and sort of put everybody on equal footing. So this, this was a sales company in, in Atlanta. And I spoke with uh, Heather Frady, who was a, a sales rep. Notable, by the way, I wanted to just speak to the bosses, right? Cause what are they going to say? Oh, these yeah, are great, yeah. right? Obviously. So I want to talk to some rank and file folks too. And she said, look, I thought this was a real blast for our team. And I didn't even join in. Uh, Heather Freddie said she preferred to sit on the sideline and just and film the action, uh, which is, you know, I, I was the big winner there because I got to watch the, the video and it, it was really, really entertaining. But she said, you know, it was it was good because people didn't feel pressured um, to, to participate. And that's another key, right? I mean, sometimes these yes. things are optional, but mm, is it really? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So true. And, you know, with especially their employers who have golf outings and well, if you don't like golf or, you know, you you never play. That's a lot of pressure to be to be doing that with coworkers. Jan and Long Beach says, for introverts like me, doing these kinds of exercises are the most torturous thing. That's Jan in Long Beach. We're talking with Callum Borscher's columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He writes a weekly column about people's careers and work lives. What a great job, because he gets a chance to talk with all these different people about aspects of work. His most recent, you're good at your job, but are you fun enough? We're talking about those ways that companies and bosses try and create a sense of a spree- decor and whether they end up falling flat or succeeding 866-893-5722 we'll be back in just one minute We're talking about purportedly fun activities in the workplace. Joe in West Hollywood emailed, I was involved with a company without any centralized location. The founders were fond of operating compulsory happy hour via camera on Zoom sessions. The worst part was that they liked to do this late Friday, and most of the team was East Coast. For those poor East Coasters, that meant sacrificing their Friday nights to participate in mandatory watching people drink their own supplies. It was such a display of a total absence of understanding how to motivate people. That's Joe in West Hollywood. Lee in Pasadena emailed, I'm self-employed now, but in the 90s, I worked for one of the big four accounting firms. Our marketing team, which was fairly high profile, used to do a lot of offsites, mostly meeting in hotels. We do some interesting things while we were there. Those were great, and frankly, the dinners with the free flowing wine were much more team-building than anything else, but the worst thing I can remember doing was them taking us to one of these paint-your-own-ceramics places. We all had to paint something we could bring home. It's a little bit of fun, but overall just a waste of time and money. We felt like children. Uh, ben and Valley Village emailed my organization had a small staff retreat last week. We spent the first day in meditation, self-reflecting journaling and storytelling as we shared value-defining moments in our lives. We used these stories to get to know each other better and to craft personal mission statements. Our organization focuses on dialogue and storytelling so it was a beautiful match with our mission and values that's ben in valley village ben thank you so much uh sandra in mar vista you're on air talk i understand you used to work for a general telephone company which doesn't exist anymore
9: yes we used to have a kind of far-flung organization
6: and twice a year we would have meetings with everyone the uh, managers on up and a half, it was a three-day meeting, and a half-day was always a team-building exercise. And one example of one of the better ones was we did a, um, a, a what do you call it? Habitat for Humanity. Oh, yeah. We all, uh, broke into teams, and um, we were with different people than our normal people that we worked with, and we each did different tasks. Some people painted, some people sawed, some people uh, planted flowers, and it was a really good experience.
0: It sounds great. What I'm hearing, Callum, consistently is that people that were doing this sort of um group volunteering activity with with nonprofits. Um this seems to be a hit.
8: It does. I'm hearing that theme. and I love the variety, by the way, that we're getting in in the responses. And I think that that's one of the consistencies is that a lot of folks feel like if they're going to do something that's non-work related, but do it with their colleagues, they do want to feel like it's purposeful, right? So hence the grumbling about sitting around and painting pottery. I mean, maybe it's an activity you enjoy, but if you don't inherently find that fun, you're going to be sitting there saying, well, what's the purpose of this? At least with something like a Habitat for Humanity build, if you go along and you say, you know, this isn't really my thing, you know, hammers and nails, not my not my strong suit. But I see the purpose here, right? We're doing something good for other people. Um, It's good for the company's brand. It's a chance to get to know my colleagues better. It's easier to justify something that isn't maybe your cup of tea
0: uh let's see uh armina in la Crescenta says my company used to have annual sales event part of that was taking the entire group to a lavish party one year they told us they were surprising us they put us on buses to downtown los angeles and we worked with people living on the street it was great that's armina in la Crescenta. our sharon mcnary of LAST 89.3 sharon please uh, give us your experience Hey, Larry, and
9: thanks. Uh, In the mid-'90s, I was a Peace Corps volunteer um, in Bolivia where I was, you know, very interested in learning to speak Spanish better. And, like, in the first couple weeks of my time in the town where I was assigned, uh, I was working in a small hospital, um, not as a medical person, um, but building latrines and stuff. And they said, oh, we're going to go on a little trip. The entire staff of the hospital was loaded into these open, back trucks and taken on this, you know, four-hour trip to another hospital somewhere else, and they made us do a hike uh, with all of our stuff, and I had too much stuff, and I lost my balance on a rock crossing, uh, a creek, I was in a terrible, terrible bad mood because my Spanish ability was kind of on the low end of okay at that time, so I could speak, but I couldn't understand what others were saying to me, and And then they invited us all to a party. And it's like they liked the hospital we were staying in, so we had to go to the party. And then they liked the party. (laughs) So I'm stuck inside this party. I ended up climbing over a fence to get out of there. I was just not not feeling it, shall we
0: say. This is, yeah, this is the uh, social event from hell, clearly, um, for that. And were there others who shared your dismay over this, Sharon? No, this is a huge treat for everybody involved. I mean, they kept talking
9: to me in the weeks before we went Oh, This was so much fun. Um, You know, because I think they enjoyed the the free food and drink and plum wine and coca chewing and you know
0: it, it was just awful <laughs> Sharon thank you for sharing that uh, our LAS 89.3 Sharon McNary with her Peace Corps bonding experience we're at 866 893 5722 or email us at the new email address comments at com, and uh, please share your experience about uh, an employer uh, related bonding experience and one that was really great we had that uh one from Bannon Valley village that was really right on point with the mission and the theme of the work that his employer was doing and others that have just been uh total debacles 866 893 5722 uh callamborshire's wall street uh, journal do you think with more people coming back to the office now that um, sort of, in some cases, mania that, that underlies some of these things is going to die down a bit, we'll get back to more normal?
8: It might. That might be one of the perks of going back to the office. And we do see, by the way, just last week uh, that uh, office occupancy across the country crossed 50 percent, according to Castle Systems, ah. for the first time since before the pandemic. So that's still, you know, that's half, right? It's still not very high. But we are trending upward ever so slightly. And, yeah, if you see people more frequently just sort of in a casual setting, there may be less need um for that kind of, you know, in- intensity, the mania that you described. And, of course, the other piece of this, too, is, is just kind of the state of the economy, right, Larry? Because there's a real optical calculus that companies have to be careful. Of, right. I mean, if, if on the one week uh, you, you've got some big blowout celebration, team building activity, spending money on that, you know, and then a month later you're laying people off, you know, you're going to have some cranky employees on your hands who are saying, hey, why didn't we save that money and try to save a few more jobs?
0: Well, yeah. And, and of course, you know, we saw you know, about back in 2008 with the huge uh, economic uh, downturn, the recession, that a lot of companies really got raked over the coals for having lack lavish gatherings before the bottom fell out of those those companies and my sense is a lot of that sort of lavish celebrations have not come back like they were pre-recession is that your sense
8: yeah, I think that there's a difference between the sort of uh, the the luxurious nature of of some of these get togethers and, you know, sort of doing it on the cheap, going to play the whirly ball game we were talking about, or, you, you know, you're going for a hike, right? Yeah. Or you're going, that's come up a couple of times, or, you know, you're going to uh, the go-kart track. These are not high budget outings, right? I mean, really what people are complaining about in those cases is not so much um, the expense that the company is, is shelling out. It's more the time commitment. Yeah. It's the sense of obligation. That if I don't go, am I gonna you know, well, lose out a on a chance to, to Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean Callum,
0: gonna... Thank you so much. Callum Borsher's columnist for the Wall Street Journal, joining us. Much more to come in the second hour. I'll tell you all about it momentarily. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us today. Coming up a little bit later this hour, the new Hollywood Bowl season just announced this morning. We're going to take you through some of the highlights. Looks like it'll be a terrific year in Cuenca Pass. Also, we'll talk about sleep with a sleep researcher from Duke who's just written a fascinating book titled Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. That's coming up later this hour. But we begin with efforts of the city of Los Angeles to expand on the unarmed response to mental health crises of residents. This is an effort that was significantly expanded after the murder of George Floyd and the protests that followed. Many different organizations, including uh, Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health, are involved in this effort. Uh, LAPD even has its own unit that also can go out and deal with mental health crisis intervention. But five members of the L.A. City Council to this point are supporter, supporting a motion to have the L.A. City Controller audit the organizations and come up with a report of what's working, what's not there are a number of challenges involved in staffing this up and providing the services and joining us is one of the two council members who introduced this motion la city council member marquise harris dawson thank you sir for joining us we appreciate it uh, very much what specifically are what are the pieces of information you're looking to get about this
10: well, I, I mean, I don't know that there's specific pieces of information that we want as much as we want a general check-in, so we put out a pilot. The the idea behind pilots are you, you do a test run, you find out what about it works, what about it doesn't work, uh, and you try to build on that. And so we've had our program out in the field for a few years now, and it's a good time to circle up because uh, if we're ever going to grow this thing to scale, uh, the only way to do it is to use the information that we're getting on the ground uh to build on a larger project.
0: We're talking with Councilmember Los Angeles Marquise Harris Dawson joining us. It, it seems like there are a number of different organizations that are involved in this kind of response. Now the potential of course would be that you figure out who's more effectively intervening. Is that something you're hoping to get at here?
10: We want to find out who has the most effective interventions and that doesn't mean that we'll settle on one. Uh, it, it might be that uh, we understand that maybe there are three or four or five types of interventions that are needed and five different types of calls. Uh, in any case, we need to step back and look at everything that we're learning um, and what we've experienced to make that determination.
0: And does funding for this come just from the city of Los Angeles or is this a joint venture with the county?
10: Some of it, uh, it is definitely a joint venture with the county. Obviously, you know, county, the county has the Department of Mental Health, and so they have the workforce, frankly. Uh, the city of L.A. does not really have mental health professionals on staff. Even in our mental health uh, units in the police department, those aren't necessarily mental health professionals. And so it's a joint venture with the county, and also the philanthropic community has kicked in, because I think uh, everybody recognizes there's a widespread consensus that if somebody's having a mental health crisis, uh, the best idea is to show up with somebody with expertise to deal with that.
0: Uh, we're talking with Councilmember Marquise Harris-Dawson. Um, what about um, the, the ways that um, these different groups are coordinated? Do you know how it's specifically determined which unit is going to respond to a particular call?
10: Well, right now, because our units are also small, um, you know, it's one just a matter of availability. Are you in the area where the pilot is happening? Um, you know, with the mental health, uh, the mental um, health units in the police department. I mean, they uh, probably are at about one fifth uh, capacity for the whole city. So, right now, it's just a sure. Uh, point of capacity. There are far more calls that come in that are clearly mental health calls uh, than we have the capacity to respond to with the various pilots we have. I, the, the other thing I will point out is, is we want to see, in particular, the responses of families. Oftentimes, around the city, families have someone who is a member of the family who, have, who have, they have episodes at some point. And they need help and they need help immediately. They don't necessarily need help from a you know, an armed police officer with with sirens and bright lights, uh, but they do need to have a mental health worker on demand and, and we'll see how what we've done uh, responds to that problem,
0: and you know there is a fair amount of skepticism about the ability to meet that demand because of the shortage of mental health professionals, and and also you know this is high burnout work; it's very high demand on the people doing it, and there's historically been significant turnover in this. You have any thoughts about how the city can meet the the need the demand here for trained mental health? Health professionals?
10: Well, I think I think a couple of things. I think we need to work with our universities to make sure we, we are training mental health professionals who are specific to this field. But also they're paraprofessionals, so they're social workers that we can have. They're also what we call community intervention workers who are maybe not mental health experts in that, you know, they don't hold a, a license or anything like that. But they know the basics of you know, bringing someone out of or through an episode. And so I think we got to look at a variety or a stratified uh, uh, workforce that is, doesn't just depend on, uh, you know, people uh, with medical licenses. Um, the other thing that we've um, got to look at is what does having this response unit to, do to our ability to recruit uh, regular police officers? Because we're also struggling with that. Um, so I think... The better our first responder network is, the better we will do at attracting workers to it.
0: Councilman, thank you very much. We appreciate your being with us today on air Talk. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. L.A. City Councilmember Marquise Harris-Dawson, co-presented with Councilmember Tim McOster, this uh, resolution to have uh, the controller for the city uh, do an audit of the unarmed crisis response teams that are responding to calls for help on 911. Also with us, Deputy Director of Los Angeles County's Department of Mental Health, Miriam Brown. She oversees emergency response. Thank you for being with us.
11: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: So how are the different groups that respond to these crisis calls? How are they vetted? How are, how do they end up being, um, part of the, you know, the triage that they're called to go out in the field?
11: You know, actually, as we've been talking about the city, LA County Department of Mental Health has like three different models. We have our psychiatric mobile response team, which is composed of two, um, two staff and sometimes it's two clinicians or a clinician and a paraprofessional. We also have the collaborative with LAPD, which is our SMART unit, which is a response model and it's an officer and a clinician. And so we have the collaborative with LACD Fire Department, which is the newest, um, we just completed a year in one of the sessions. It's a therapeutic transportation program. That one is composed of a clinician, a peer, uh, but uh with live experience and a driver, and the goal of that particular program is really to respond to calls that fire response and then they, there's a need for mental health, they call us, and we provide the services in place, or if necessary, uh, we transport a client to the near urgent care center. All of these programs were vetted through uh, different channels. We obviously work uh, within DMH. It's being a uh, long standing uh, team, the psychiatric mob response team. With LAPD, the relationship has been for uh, 30 years. Um, and we really kind of look at the different models as the time changed. And most currently, we are uh, looking and to bring our, long, uh, our legal entities, our providers of mental health to really bring more capacity to attend to the mental health needs uh, through L.A.
0: County. We're talking with Mary.
11: I'm
0: sorry, go right ahead.
11: mm -hmm. Yeah, we're contracting out to have a 24-7 operation.
0: We're talking with LA County a Deputy Director, of the Department of Mental Health, Miriam Brown. Also with us is Jana Lord, Chief Program Officer at Sycamores, a behavioral health agency that provides services throughout Southern California. She oversees Sycamores' mobile crisis outreach team, which partners with LA County Department of Mental Health. Jana, thank you very much for for being with us. You know, share with us these these teams are are um, who comprises them.
1: Good morning. As Miriam stated, uh, our mobile crisis outreach teams are made up of mental health professionals, typically a clinician and a peer support. The peer support, their role on the team is really invaluable because this is someone with lived experience, either with homelessness, a caregiver of someone with mental health issues, uh, history potentially of domestic violence and or possibly a history with the Department of Children and Family Services. So this is a really useful role to help to build quick rapport uh, in a non-threatening manner, and they can assist with the engagement of mental health
0: services. Often, I assume, by the time a family member calls for help, the person who's in a mental health crisis is... Um, is acting in a way that the family members can't really deal with the person Um, they're agitated in such a state how do you protect the teams that respond if they're dealing with someone who's particularly agitated to the point where the family feels like they're no longer able to handle this
1: Good question. 90% of the calls are probably generated by a third-party caller. So that is a scenario in which you're describing where it's typically a loved one who's concerned about, you know, a family member or uh, someone within their neighborhood. Um, For each of the referrals that we receive, we do a, a, a thorough analysis on various risk factors for the individuals that are involved, as well as our team members. If the individual is agitated to a point where they are physically um, acting out, then it's really important for our organization and our team members to be able to partner with our local law enforcement entities to possibly have uh, to schedule a co-response. The good news is, is that that does not happen very frequently. What is more frequent is that the individual who is experiencing the mental health crisis uh, is is having challenges. However, our team of professionals—they have a uh, an intensive background in providing crisis stabilization out in the field in the communities. So they are really well versed and seasoned. They're able to provide resources to the family members or the third party caller, as well as when if it is necessary that we respond in person. They, they know how to safety plan and they know how to de-escalate. So the vast majority of the calls that we do receive and respond to in person, mm-hmm. it does not require a co-response with law enforcement. But we also do really value our law enforcement partners so that when those situations do arise, We have those relationships
0: that we can leverage. We're talking with Jana Lord, Chief Program Officer at the Behavioral Health Agency Sycamores, which has mobile crisis outreach teams that go out for calls where mental health assistance is asked for either by a member of the public, as she was just describing, or family members or friends who are concerned about someone who's experiencing a a mental health crisis. Uh, Jana, how much more demand is there than your teams are able to respond to?
1: We partner, we have great partners with the Department of uh, Mental Health and collectively we gather data on the volume and the times of the calls So not just the days of the week, but also the time of the days so that we can really prioritize when we are staffing our teams to meet those needs that we have um, gathered the data to support. Um, So with Sycamore's teams, we are able to respond to the calls that we receive. Um, The demand is still there though, right? And so there are some cases, all of the calls are triaged appropriately. So those that are the most in distress or acute are serviced first, and that calls are dispatched through the Department of Mental Health's access center, either to um, the PMRT, like the psychiatric mobile response teams that the county operates or one of the mobile crisis teams that our organization operates. Um, And so they're triaged appropriately but the demand is still there. And so I know earlier in the call, council member was talking about really the importance of working with our local universities to be talking with professionals and people that are interested in the mental health profession to begin to be able to visualize that this is something, an area that they can specialize in. Um, Since the need is there, we want to help to grow and to inspire individuals that have a passion of providing this type of services out in the field because we know that that is has a direct impact on many lives, and it is very necessary. It's, so for individuals that are doing this work, it's incredibly fulfilling.
0: It, it, it's got to be, but at the same time, it's hard to imagine someone doing this kind of intervention and all the demand of it You know, for 20 years straight. It, just, it would seem like the nature of this is you have people do this for a portion of their career, then move into other areas of social work or psychology or you know, other other sorts of, of mental health, uh, professional work. And the challenge, I would think, Jana, would be constantly replenishing that workforce.
1: Well, I think that's where our partners with our universities can be helpful, so that we're constantly building our bench and growing other individuals that have a passion for this work. But actually, on Friday, um, I was having an interview because um, we're actively scaling up uh, our teams. I was having an interview with an individual who previously did uh, work um, in providing um, uh, in the field crisis intervention in in, in a separate county um, and ha- transitioned into working in a community-based uh, organization. And she said, I'm just not happy. Like, that's not my calling. My calling is not to be in an outpatient clinic. I want to get back to the crisis work. So I do think that there are a special creative professionals that this is their work. This is their calling. And those are the individuals that we're really trying to grow that passion for. Um, because for some, they like this type of work, and they don't... Um, necessarily want to divert how 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 they're presently um, performing their mental health duties all right
0: I want to thank you so much, Janet Lord of Sycamores, Chief Program Officer of the Behavioral Health Agency that uh, has mobile crisis outreach teams. She oversees that work. They partner with LA County Department of Mental Health, and we've had Miriam Brown, Deputy Director of the Department, joining us. She oversees that emergency response for the county. It's Air Talk on KPCC coming up. The Hollywood Bowl summer season is now public. We're going to talk about all the different artists who are part of it. Classical music, world music, uh, jazz, all of that coming up here at LAist 89.3. I'll get the new identifier correct. may take me a few days. We'll be back in just one minute. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. That, of course, Janet Jackson. She headlines with Ludacris. The gala opening night at the Hollywood Bowl this summer kicks off a series of concerts throughout the weeks to follow classical under the baton of Gustavo Dudamel and others. Jazz, of course, with a Wednesday night series, the Hollywood Bowl Jazz Festival coming up in June. And we've got popular artists, all kinds of uh, artists who are going to be at the Hollywood Bowl, including the Beach Boys for the July 4th weekend. Joining us to talk about what's in store this summer is Renee Williams-Niles, the Chief Content and Engagement Officer for the LA Philharmonic, which program's the Hollywood Bowl of course. Renee thank you so much for joining us.
7: Thank you it's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: And it's great that this morning we got the schedule for the Bowl. Before we get into the the artists who are coming let's talk about the challenge of this because I'm always amazed every year the breadth of the artists who are represented. What what is sort of the mission that that uh, undergirds the programming of the Bowl?
7: Well, I have to honor, recognize our incredible programming teams uh led by Joanna Reese and Megan Umber. As I agree, they do a tremendous job. Uh and of course Hollywood Bowl, they're programming Disney Hall, they're also programming the Ford. Um and of course, last year we had the great joy to recognize the Centennial um, of the Hollywood Bowl. And using that time both looking at the past but thinking about our future and so this coming season really represents uh, our continuance of looking at that future bringing in new artists i think we have over 30 debuts uh this coming season at the bowl uh, so that was something that we wanted to focus on that newness that freshness both for the artists but also for our audiences and making sure of course we're welcoming people back who uh where the Hollywood Bowl is their summer tradition but we want more and more people to who might have not been to the bowl yet to make This their new tradition as well,
0: and that of course is the challenge. How do you get younger people to come out to the bowl to experience it? You know, when I started as a kid, sitting way up at the top in the dollar seats, that's and they're still there. Yeah, I'm so glad that they are. But that's how, for many of us, we really got exposed to the bowl. There was a box would have been unthinkable in my family. That just was not an option. But yet we still had that chance to be able to hear the great live music at the bowl. So making sure. accessible to everybody is is important let's talk about some of uh, the uh, classical tuesdays and thursdays that yes. tradition continues and one of the things i love is that gustavo dudamel uh, clearly digs conducting at the bowl because he's really committed to doing it every season
7: most definitely i mean he made his u.s debut i think it was 2005 at the hollywood bowl so you're right. It uh, very much holds a special place. I think what's what is also embraced by Gustavo and all of us is that breadth and depth of artists uh, and genres. Um, And no one, like Gustavo, loves to work with so many um, types of artists and styles of music. Uh, And the Hollywood Bowl is certainly the best place to experience that. Not naming names, but
0: that hasn't always been the case with the um, artistic directors and conductors of of the (laughs) L.A. Phil. And it's clear that um, it's really, you know, he he loves that. And doing what that venue can do differently than Walt Disney Concert Hall, because each has its advantages. very much. So let, let's talk about some of the, the programming and some of the guest artists that that you uh, have. Um, Leonard Slatkin will be conducting the LA Phil coming up, uh, Dvorak's New World Symphony. Um, you've also got uh, Japanese jazz pianist Makoto Ozone, who's going to be in, in in late July. Um, the LA Phil um, will be um, under the baton of Stefan Denev, uh, leading uh, uh, New World old uh symphony the la phil um and billy child the great (laughs) composer and jazz
7: pianist his
0: violin concerto number two also announced for this
7: yes uh and again just uh that newness even artists that we know um but bringing new work um with gustavo as you had mentioned before he will be with us uh, multiple weeks at the hollywood bowl i'm certainly excited about his midsummer night's dream um what could be more perfect to experience, to to listen to at the Bowl. There will be some light projection with that um, particular uh, concert. Uh, Gustavo's also bringing with us uh, Verde's Requiem and I think a true highlight is uh, L.A.'s own um, operatic soprano, uh, Angel Blue, who will be with us that evening, as well as other just an impressive young soloist. Um, Gustavo and the Yellow Phil, we're continuing our focus, what we've been calling the Pan American Music Initiative. Mm -hmm. So really bringing in Exciting, incredible, impressive voices um, from across the Americas, including U.S. composers, but also composers and works from Brazil, uh, from Mexico, from Argentina. One of the programs even includes a beautiful dance company, one of my favorites um, from Brazil called Grupo Cuepo, uh, because Gustavo also loves dance and movement.
0: Uh, and I see uh, more Ellington to come, uh, yes. which is which is great, um, because he clearly loves Duke Ellington's music. Let's talk about some of the popular artists. I mentioned the Beach Boys over the three nights uh, of July uh, 4th, the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, uh, with the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra and its principal conductor, Thomas Wilkins. Cool and the Gang and the Village People, that's going to be a fun night, a lot of dancing in the aisles, July 14th and 15th, Quincy jones 90th birthday tribute and that seems like a great opportunity to bring together so many top artists who are going to want to come out and be a part of that program do we have do we know
7: who's in that lineup yet we can't announce just yet okay. um, but certainly we'll be bringing that to you uh, once we pull it all together but you're so right um, there are numerous countless artists um that want to be able to recognize uh mr jones and be able to do this um with an audience um, that has been able to experience so much of his music. Uh, well, and going
0: back to, you know, his start days as a trumpeter and, you know, straight ahead jazz, and then through those classic AM 60s and early 70s albums like Walking in Space, and then, of course, the great albums with Michael Jackson and with other popular music artists, you see the evolution of Quincy Jones as an artist, as a tastemaker, and he's still with us, thankfully. So we'll look for. Forward to uh to
7: that event coming up as well and he yes. still goes out and listens to music he's still very active most definitely and he's still i think a mentor uh to so many up and coming artists as well um and uh know that it, this is a personal favorite of mine um there is a reason my son's middle name is Quincy
0: excellent taste (laughs) (laughs) right. Uh, if you have any questions about the bowl season you can email them to atcomments at LAS.com we're talking with Renee Williams-Niles the Chief Content and Engagement Officer for the LA Philharmonic which of course programs the Hollywood Bowl this morning just uh, about an hour and a half ago the schedule came out and we're talking about all the artists uh, who are are part of this culture club returns uh, to the the bowl with boy george of course uh king gizzard and the lizard wizard australian rock band with a three-hour marathon set of psychedelic music i'm not familiar <laughs> with with the band but that sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun
7: well one of the things we love to talk about is you come to the bowl to discover right and certainly you can enjoy um, you make that tradition but I think this is a perfect example um, of those that can come if they're less familiar with an artist what a great way to learn more and more uh, the neo soul great Maxwell uh,
0: leading the fireworks finale so uh, he's of course got uh, was three decades now of, of songs that's going to be uh, the last three dates uh, in, in September with the fireworks uh, finale so, again, a lot of different stuff and uh, world music with the Sunday night concerts uh, that you've got Reggae Night 21, um, The Man, uh, the Psych Soul Four Piece Band, Chicano Batman uh, and a number of other artists. Any
7: you particularly want to point out for the Sunday night concerts? Oh, my goodness. There's um, I think Chicano Batman is certainly one that I am looking forward to. Um uh, my Morning Jacket, uh, I, th- I think one of the things that um, we looked at was kind of that combination of what we all know and love and those artists, um, but also um, artists that are returning. They really feed off of um, kind of helping and supporting the up and coming. Uh, and so these programs and these concerts will support that.
0: All right. And finally, my my favorite is jazz. So we saved that. We got some great soul artists and jazz performers. Jill Scott at the Bowl on June 22nd. Charlie Wilson of the Gap Band. Uncle Charlie, of course, he's going to be in July 12th with Solo and Gap Band. Favorites: Uh, Joe Bonamassa, the guitarist, is going to be in. Um, Gladys Knight returns to the Bowl, always a tremendous uh, performer. Buddy Guy, great blues guitarist, singer. He's back at the Bowl on September 6th. And then the Hollywood Bowl Jazz Festival, which we hope to talk about in greater detail as we get closer to that June weekend. Co-curated this year by Herbie Hancock and the saxophonist. Kamasi Washington two day festival Arsenio Hall will be back as host for his second straight year. Also with Jazz at the Bowl, Diana Krall, the pianist and vocalist, July nineteenth. Herbie Hancock, the L.A. Phil Creative Chair for Jazz, August twenty third. His concerts are always notable because it's not just, of course, uh, you know, some of his classic music, but he brings young artists in. Herbie is always on the cutting edge of music. You are talking about Quincy Jones and his, his commitment to young musicians, Herbie Hancock is always listening, always picking up on what's new.
7: Very much. I think you're so right. And that's the excitement, um, of those concerts. When you, when you have Herbie with us and he's bringing all of these exciting artists and to be able to kind of follow that journey and see the beginnings of that journey along the way. And, um, And what he will continue to do for us uh, and what he brings to the Hollywood Bowl, that will um, definitely be a highlight of the season. Well, he's been the creative
0: here for jazz for years now, and I mean, you had some great ones, Christian McBride, Diane Reeves, and his great, you know, who's who of jazz, but um, uh, he's really made this uh, his own. Herbie has really um, grabbed grabbed this uh, by the horn, so to speak, and put together some wonderful programming. Thank you so much for being with us and talking about uh, this season. We appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. That's Renee Williams-Niles, Chief Content and Engagement Officer for the LA Phil Course uh, the tickets are on sale. We leave you with music from Harry Potter because we're going to get to see John Williams again with Gustavo Dudamel, of course. Those two have done such wonderful collaborations. John Williams' music is just part of the Hollywood Bowl season. It's Air Talk coming your way on LAist 89.3. Coming up, we'll talk about how to get to sleep, stay to sleep without using medication. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us on LAS 89.3. That's our new name going forward. Uniting Radio, LAS Studios for our podcast, and LAS.com, the digital presence. For all things LA. It's so good to have you with us today. What a Hollywood Bowl season coming up. So nice to preview that. We look forward to being able to do that every February. Well, it's been a long time since this has happened, but our guest for the next segment is Missing in Action. Uh, Hopefully, she didn't fall asleep on us. (laughs) She was going to talk about the new book, Hello Sleep, and how to avoid insomnia without taking medication. But um, she is MIA. And uh, so I'm going to switch gears and ask for your help for this segment, because as you just heard and as you probably know by now, President Biden will be giving his State of the Union address six o'clock. You'll be hearing it live here at LAist 89.3. We also have a Spanish language broadcast. So if there's anyone in your world for whom it'd be preferable to listen to the Spanish translation, translation you'll find that at las.com but i'd like to hear from you what you want the president to address tonight? If you were writing his State of the Union address, what would you want to make sure is included? We're at 866-893-5722. It's important I hear from you because this is your chance to be the guest because I don't have the formal guest with us for the remaining 20 minutes here. 866-893-5722. You can also email your your thoughts at atcomments at, at lais.com. That's our new email address. It'll still come through on the old one, but our new email address is atcomments at, at com. Please include your location and your first name. If you were writing this speech for President Biden tonight, What would you highlight? What do you think it's most important for him to say? Are there any themes that you think could bring about uh, a greater uniting of the American people? Are there any messages that you think... The president really needs to highlight in a way that he's not done so before, either at all or in a way that you think would actually be more effective in his speech tonight. 866-893-5722. Or again, you can email us your thoughts. If you were playing speechwriter for the president, what would you script for him? AT comments at LAist.com. Please include your location and your first name. We have listeners who are calling us, which is great as we're waiting for them. Let me just remind you that tickets are on sale now for our 21st annual film week Academy Awards preview with all of our film week critics on stage at the historic Orpheum theater in downtown Los Angeles. It's right there on Broadway, right in the heart of everything going on. Uh, there in the theater district of L.A. Please come join us Sunday afternoon, March 5th, just a week before the Oscars are handed out, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Tickets are available at LAS.com slash events. We're going to show clips of the top films of the year. I choose them myself, and we talk about each of the films, the major categories. It's a really fun time, and we take some questions from members of our in-person audience as well. The Film Week Oscar preview 21st annual event tickets at las.com slash events let's talk with christina in palm desert who joins us christina if you were writing the president's state of the union address tonight what would you want to make sure is included
9: well i'd like him to continue his pursuit of improving our infrastructure and i would like to see how we can encourage our Educational system to prepare our next generation to be uh, ready to work on the infrastructure. I'm thinking AmeriCorps. You serve that, and then only then can you get free college education.
0: All right. So you'd like to see some sort of a a, a, of a like a mandatory service program? Are you saying, or just so that just for education being paid for?
9: It well. So if you serve in the military, you can get. Free college education, so mm-hmm. why not serve in improving the infrastructure via AmeriCorps, and if you serve then you can get a free college education if you still want one.
0: That sounds great. Christina, thank you. I appreciate that. 866-893-5722. You'll hear the president's address and the Republican response tonight uh, on LAST 89.3. And again, the Spanish language translation you can share with friends who might be more comfortable listening in Spanish. They can find that at LAST.com. Let's talk with Stuart in Valley Glenn Stewart what would you like to hear the president say tonight
6: hi Larry thank you um I think that there is a, a prevailing misconception particularly among the opposite party that Joe Biden's presidency has been remarkably ineffective and I think the opposite is true I think in his first two years he's actually accomplished a very great deal the infrastructure bill things pertaining to climate. I and mean, it's really quite a list. I think history is going to see him as something like Eisenhower, you know, an underappreciated in his time, but really quite an achiever. And I think he'll probably do it. But I want I would want to be sure that he really exhaustively listed and clearly listed his accomplishments to try to quash this general sense that he's a lame duck or
0: a loser. And I would bet he does that, Stuart. I, I would bet you're gonna hear a lot about like Christina was just talking about infrastructure and 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 other things. The State of the Union address is typically a chance for the president to be able to to tout accomplishments. Uh and and I would expect that. And uh, be interesting to see if it's in the detail that you think would, would be beneficial for him to do that. Stuart, I appreciate it. 866 893 5722 if you were writing the speech for president biden tonight for the state of the union what would you want to see include what do you think is very important for the president to address uh let's talk with mitch in west los angeles mitch what would you script for him
12: hi larry i would say that the president needs to talk directly to local law enforcement and say look I appreciate how tough your job is. I appreciate how dangerous it is. I appreciate that there are too many guns on the street and that most of the people being killed on the street are not being shot by police, but are being shot and killed by other people on the street. But be all that as it may, you are the trained officers. You are the ones we give this responsibility to, and they're going to have to be a mindset change. Among local law enforcement, among the rank and file, you're going to have to decide together that we understand you don't want to get shot. You don't want to get killed out there, but you're going to have to come together. It's got to bubble up from the bottom. The local law enforcement personnel have got to decide there's going to be a change in how policing is done on the street.
0: And Mitch, do you think the president is likely to take up the issue of policing? Um, you know, given our our, our recent horrible incident. Um, I mean, I think
12: he's likely to. I think he is likely to do that, but I'm afraid. He's not going to do it in a way so that he feels that local law enforcement feels he's also talking to them. Mm -hmm. I think he's going to take it up in the more politically correct way. And these incidents are horrible. I fully appreciate that, but I don't think people understand that most of the death on the street takes place at the hands of other people on the street. And I think he's got to let them know that besides asking them for a mindset change in policing, He's also telling them that he understands their circumstances and has their back.
0: Mitch, I appreciate the call. Thank you so much. We'll continue with more listener calls. I appreciate your jumping right in and playing speechwriter for President Biden. If you were crafting his State of the Union address for tonight at six o'clock our time that you'll hear here at L.A. 89.3. What would you include and make sure that the president addressed? 866 893 5722. We have room for more listener calls. I'd like to hear from you. We'll be back in just one minute. You are part of the best audience in radio. There's just no question about it. In case you just joined us, this segment, we had something that hasn't happened, frankly, in years, where a guest, an author, was coming on to talk about her book is just missing in action. We hope she's okay, but we've not been able to reach her. It's long been booked. And uh, so on a dime, we had to switch. And I'm asking listeners to weigh in. If you were writing the speech for President Biden's State of the Union address tonight— what would you include in it? What do you think should be the priorities in that speech? And we're getting great response. I appreciate your jumping right in and being part of Air Talk today at 866-893-5722, where you can email us at atcomments at laist.com. That's atcomments at laist.com. Let's talk with, uh, Mercedes in Altadena. Mercedes, what do you want to see included in his speech?
5: Yeah, I would love to see him just reassure that Medicare and um, Social Security is going to stick around. I have aging parents and grandparents, and I think as a millennial, um, it's a concern for me that they'll be taken care of and that we still
11: have those services
5: as I get older, too.
0: And is there anything specific you'd like him to say about the funding of Social Security? Or just you want to make sure that, that he indicates it's on his radar that this will be a presidential priority?
5: Yeah, that it'll be a presidential priority, and that he is working bipartisanly to um, continue that. I know that is like a public in, in with the public, it's you know very very highly favored, but that unfortunately certain people within within the Republican Party are kind of pushing back against the, that type of spending. Um, and you know, I know that one of his big initiatives is to be bipartisan and is to like work with both sides of the parties and so I hope that he can kind of look at those things that are really affecting like the aging population and us as Americans um, as well as you know obviously including that in his whole financial plan for international relations supporting different wars and things like that but just kind of and those practicalities, making sure yeah. that the public feels like, yes, we hear you, we see you, like,
0: we know that you care about this. Well, Mercedes, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. 866 893 Frank, in Cathedral City, what would you write into the president's speech if you were the one doing it?
10: I think when we're looking at new outbreaks in China where their penetrance of vaccination has been generally lower, we need to really tout the fact that we've had a large number of people vaccinated and it has helped us overcome the epidemic.
0: All right, Frank, I appreciate it. 866-893-5722. Judy in Palos Verde says, I don't want to see any attacking of other groups. All I want to hear are solution. Uh, Kathy in San Gabriel, I'd like to know how much money is going to Ukraine. Uh, Kathy, I don't believe that any U.S. dollars are actually going to Ukraine. The spending, I believe, is happening here. And uh, weapons Weapons are being provided, so the money that's being spent is actually to backfill on weapons here in the United States. But I take your point about the resources going to Ukraine. Absolutely. That's Kathy in San Gabriel. Josh in Brea says, I'd like to hear him actually address culture wars between Democrats and Republicans. Josh, thank you very much for that. And Kerry in Simi Valley, good to have you with us on AirTalk. What do you think, the president? needs to address
9: hello yes um yeah i i don't understand how our law enforcement have become judge and jury for people of color um people of color are being murdered on the streets and i'd like president biden to address this
0: okay and do you have any specifics that you'd like him uh to to spell out in the speech
9: yeah uh you know uh, back to the old funding the police. no, we're not trying to take money away from the police. we're trying to put money where it is best funded i mean that uh, someone is on the street. And uh, there's been a phone call made about this person in distress. And then if that person is black, that person may very well end up dead. Uh, obviously, the police force, the sheriff's department, people in blue are not handling these situations correctly for people of color. And I, I just would like to have some answers about where we can better put funds so that we can educate our people in blue. They need more than three months training. They need more schooling. I don't know what it is they need. Perhaps years of education before they are allowed to carry a well, gun. Well,
0: of course, there's already a big shortage of law enforcement, so that's the trade-off in, in raising the requirements. But, Carrie, I appreciate it very much. Thank you for for that. And um, as we heard earlier from uh, Mitch, um, uh, and the thought is almost certainly he's going to address policing. We'll see what he has to say. Again, the President's State of the Union address will be at 6 o'clock right here on LAist 89.3 You'll also be able to hear it on the LAist app at LAist.com, and you'll hear the Republican response. Also, we have a Spanish language. For the first time that we've offered a Spanish language translation of the State of the Union, that's at LAist.com as well. Uh, And again, if you want to get in here in the last minute, you can email us at atcomments at LAist.com. Derek and Rancho Cucamonga, emailed, I'd like to hear the president remind the country that inflation is a nationwide issue and not something he or his administration are responsible for. John in Fullerton emailed a recent Washington Post ABC poll showed a large majority of respondents believe Biden has accomplished very little. In fact, his presidency has been incredibly successful. He needs to help the public understand this. That's John in Fullerton. Andy in West LA emailed, would love for him to talk about the health Care public option that he promised. And Ravener tweets at Airtalk, my big concern is employment and the economy. I am struggling to find a ge- decent job and career. Many people don't seem to understand that. Many think the economy is fine. It's not. That's Ravener tweeting at Airtalk. Thank you so much for all this tremendous input on what you would write if you were crafting President Biden's speech that he'll be delivering tonight. Wonderful to get all of your thoughts on this and the degree of specifics that you would like to hear him go into. Again, you'll hear the State of the Union address. It's on at six o'clock, followed by the Republican response live at LAist 89.3 at LAist.com and on the LAist app. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate all your input. Stay tuned. Coming up next, it's NPR's Here and Now, continuing coverage of the crisis in Turkey and in Syria after the massive early morning Monday 7.8 earthquake. Fresh air with Terry Gross comes up at noon. Have a terrific day. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 9 at L A S 89.3.